You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Super excited to be here with you guys this morning. Um, I told the, the first service how grateful I am for your pastor and his wife and what they've meant to me and my wife over the past few years. Uh, and as a young man, uh, Pastor Brent kind of alluded to this, I'm 35, but as a young man, I, I have come to the place where um, when I'm looking around at people who uh, I'm, I'm admiring, I, I, I no longer look for people who have had significant impacts in, term, in terms of um, buildings that they've built or how many people they've discipled in ministry or how big a church is. Those things really don't mean anything to me anymore. But one of the things that has, I think, overtaken my heart when I look at men and women who are changing the world through the power of the gospel is the legacy of their family. Uh, And when I look at Pastor Brent and Carla and what they've done with their children, uh, that inspires me because I have three, five, and under. Uh, Lord, help me. Uh, And I am am, uh, just thrilled to see what their kids are doing in ministry, worshiping and leading worship and going on mission and coming to our city and serving our city. So I'm just thrilled. Can we honor your leaders, Pastor Brent and Pastor Carla? Come on, y'all can do better than that. You got great leaders. And then my wife is here with me this morning. She hardly ever goes anywhere with me, but because we're going on vacation after this, she is with me this morning. So my wife, Joy, is here. Joy, would you, would you wave your hand, Joy, so everybody can see you? Yeah. And then we, we, we wanted to steal some tips from y'all this morning for children's ministry. So we brought our children's director here this morning, Savannah. Savannah, would you just ra- wave your hand? Thank you for coming and being with us as well. All right, if you got a Bible, go with me to Genesis chapter 15, or I know we're part of a new generation, so you got the screen behind me, so you can look on the screen if you want to do that. But if you got a Bible, Genesis 15, I'm going to read from the ESV, and we're going to begin in verse number one. It reads this way. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. I want to preach on this topic this morning. Don't forget the preface. Don't forget 
the preface. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much for who you are and what you want to say and what you want to do in this space and in this time. And so, God, I just pray that you would, you would use these moments to empower us, to build our faith, to help us to trust and to love you in a greater way. Father, thank you for the word that transforms and changes us. And my prayer today is that we all would be transformed through what it is that you want to say. Lord, we thank you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and everybody said amen. Nobody likes to wait. Uh, if we're honest, if we're all honest in this room, waiting actually stinks. We've all had moments of prolonged waiting. Waiting in lines at the stores or maybe waiting for a flight that got delayed or canceled at an airport. And some of you who are in this room, I've noticed how many young people are in this room. Some of you might be in this room waiting on that special boo thing to sweep you off of your feet. Prolonged waiting stinks sometimes. My wife and I, this past week, waited over 48 hours for our power to come back on after a 95-mile-an-hour windstorm came through our city and tore down trees. We, we were, with three little kids, we were ready for our power to come back on. We're asking ourselves the question over and over again, is it over yet? And, and waiting is not something we want to get used to because in waiting, things are outside of our control. That's exactly where faith puts us, outside of our ability to control the situation. I grew up in this house, and in the house I grew up in, everything in the kitchen was white. The cabinets were, were white. The stove was, excuse me, not the stove, the washing dryer was white. The, dish, the dishwasher was white. The counters were, everything was white in the kitchen except the stove. The stove was mint green. It was ugly. It did not match at all. But we didn't have any money to replace it, so we just had to keep the mint green stove. And this mint green stove, you had to, if you pulled it down, it would snap back so hard. And if you grew up in the culture that I grew up in, if your grandmother or your mother was baking something, you couldn't run through the kitchen, you couldn't talk loud because they felt like it was going to cave in. And so my mom would always tell me, do not run through the kitchen and do not open the stove and slam it. My cake or whatever I'm baking is going to cave in. But then I grew up and I have a stove with a light on it. And so I can go to the stove and hit the light and see what's happening in the stove whenever I want to. That mint green stove means that we had to put whatever we wanted into the stove and we would have to wait till it's done. You couldn't check on it. You just have to hope that all of it was going to come out the proper way you wanted it to be. But now with this stove with the light on it, I can just press the light and I can watch the stove, things progressively grow. I, I remember our, our son Zeke, when he was younger, when my wife would be baking things, he would come into the kitchen and he would go, Mom, turn the light on on the stove. And she would turn the light on on the stove and he would stand there and just stare at whatever she was cooking until it came to the way it was supposed to be. The truth is, faith is a lot like that green stove. We have to put what we are cooking in the stove and allow the process just to work itself. And we're hoping and praying that on the backside, we put the right ingredients in and that we've done the right stuff and, and, and we put it in on the, on, the, on the right setting as far as temperature and hoping that it's going to come out the right way. But if we're all honest, we want the stove. We want our faith to be the stove with the light on it. We want to see what's happening. 
We want to see the process of it growing. We want to see, is everything working together? Do I need to check it? Do I need to do anything to it? If faith for us is seeing every step of the journey, it's probably a fraudulent faith. God often uses the weight to firm up our confidence in him and what he has already spoken to us. One scholar said this, waiting is an exercise of faith that demonstrates the condition of our hearts. And in this text, Abram, he is in the wait. He has left everything that he's known. He's left the land to go to a land that God would say that he's calling him to. And Abraham finds himself at this land that God said he's going to give him. And he looks over into the land and it is filled with Canaanites. They're occupying the territory that God said was his. And so Abraham is going through all of these different changes and he has this promise from God that he was going to make of him a great nation and that he was going to bless him. And through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, but he has all kinds of troubles along the way. He has to rescue his nephew Lot. He he goes to war and he has to battle to save his nephew and all of his possessions. Abraham's waiting on these initial promises spoken have been nothing but smooth. Everything has gone awry. He's thinking, God, surely he made a promise and this is going to be easy, but it has not been as smooth as he's wanted to be. What do you do when your waiting doesn't involve peace, but it involves problems? What do you do when you're journeying through life and how you want this thing to turn out is not going the way you thought it was going to go, but it's filled with problems? There are leaders in here who probably took over a ministry or you're leading and you're serving a ministry. And when you took it over, you had all these grand ideas of what you wanted it to be and how it was going to look and how many people you were going to attract to it. But maybe it's not looking the way you wanted it to look. Maybe you're in the room and you're waiting on healing to come into your body and you've been praying and asking the Lord, but you've yet to see healing come into your body. And maybe the report has gotten just a little bit worse. Maybe you're a young creative in the room and you're, you got this creative energy about yourself and you're waiting on the right doors to open so that you can use your gifting and your calling and do what God has called you to do, yet there's no opportunities popping up. What do you do when the wait gets hard? Go back and read the preface. Go back and remember what God has already spoken to you. Whenever I'm in a bookstore and I'm choosing a book to read, uh, I often choose a book based on what the preface says. I don't have time to sit and read a full chapter and to find out what the entire book is going to be about, because even if I read a chapter, it may take a different turn. And so whenever I'm reading a preface, the preface is like an introduction to the book where the author attempts to build credibility for himself and the book. The author is trying to show the reader why they are worth reading. It doesn't matter what I think the book is about. The author has confirmed to me what I am about to experience as I read this book. It doesn't matter what turn the book seems to take. The author has confirmed to me what the book is intended to do. And in times of despair, Long waiting, heartache, the twist and turns of life. We must return to what God has already spoken. 
How can we know he is true? How can we be steadfast in the journey? How does waiting not become easy but worth it? Don't forget what God has already spoken in the beginning. God spoke his word, and if there's one thing that we can stand on and one thing that we can believe to be sure, it is God's word. Abraham is having a vision from God, and Abraham surely shows that he has some sort of frustration with God in this moment. He has some stuff he wants to get off of his chest because he's been waiting, and he's so fired up that he doesn't even acknowledge what God says in verse number one. Abram goes into verse number two, and he just begins to talk about he's childless. And he, because he has no child, he says, man, there's going to be a slave that is going to be the heir to everything that I have. I don't have what I actually want from God. Abram is in the wait. This text, before he acknowledges the promises God made to him, he shows the anguish of not seeing the promises of God yet we've all been there before. We know what God said. We got the journal where we wrote everything down. We got the time. We remember when God said it. But somehow, some way, even though we got everything that God said, it's still hard to stay in the fight when we're waiting on God to do things in our lives. God, in this vision, gives Abram a word that we all can have confidence in. Abram, needs to go back to verse number one and remember what God said. God breaks into the silence in verse number one, and he says this, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. First point to you is God speaks to our fears. God speaks to our fears. In this first portion Verse number one, he uses these two words, fear not. Everybody repeat that after me, fear not. If I ask right now for those who struggle with fear to raise their hand in this room, it is quite possible that a large majority of the room would raise their hand. Because oftentimes, we have allowed fear to become a trap for us. We allow fear to overtake us, and we allow fear to put us in a prison where we cannot move forward and do what God has called us to do. And in this text, when he says, fear not, it is the first time out of 70 plus times in all of Scripture that fear not is used. And Abram needs to hear this in this moment for a bit of peace. Whether it be because the armies he, uh, he just defeated in verse 14 coming and retaliating against him or because of the anguish he has in chapter 15 of being childless or not having inherited the land that he said that he was going to get, fear has set in. We could easily say that these are justifiable reasons to be afraid, but if we have a word from the Lord, we have no need to be afraid. Fear is an emotional response to a perceived threat or danger. Fear is an emotional response to a perceived threat or danger. The thought of giving up everything for Abram to trust God is leaving him wondering, will God actually come through? The, the, the thought of actually giving up all of these things to say, God, I'm going to follow you, 
can bring about a level of fear. I never forget getting saved. When I got saved, I thought that my life was going to be boring. Y'all, y'all, I know some of y'all thought like that. Y'all ain't got to agree with me out loud, but I know some of y'all thought that. I thought when I came to Christ, because I was partying, I was, I was in a fraternity, I was on a football, I was thinking to myself, like, there's no way these Christians are having more fun. This is, this is going to be the most, I'm going to serve Jesus, but this is going to be the most boring life ever. Come to find out, my life has been far more enjoyable from trusting God in the unknown than, than walking in the known. There is, a, there is a, a fear that tries to captivate us and overtake us, but, but God gives us this word that we can trust in. Abram needed to hear this word that God could handle his fears. His possessions couldn't do it. His wife couldn't do it. His success wouldn't be able to do it. He needed what this verse says, a word from the Lord. And it is this word from the Lord that keeps us that holds us fast and keeps us steady. i never forget my son, and I'm talking about one of my sons. He's, he's, he's the one who we got all the stories about, Zeke. One night, my son was talking about the monsters in his room. He was like, Mom, Dad, there are monsters in my room. I don't want to go to bed. There's, there's monsters in the room. I see shadows. I mean, just all kind of stuff. So we say, son, there's no monsters in your room. There's no monsters in this house. We pleaded the blood of Jesus over this house. There's no monsters. Go in there and go to sleep. So I decided to go into the room, and I get down on the floor, and I'm picking up beds, and I'm like, son, there's, there's no monsters underneath that bed. I'm opening the closet door. I said, son, there's, there's no monsters in the closet. There's, there's nothing. I want you to see that no one is in here. And then I prayed for him. And I said, God didn't give us the spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And I looked at Zeke and I said, son, you got it there. There's no monsters in this room. Would you agree with me? He said, God didn't give us, he said, Jesus didn't give us the spirit of fear, but a power, love, and of a sound mind. And what I realized in that moment is although I had gotten down on the floor and showed my son under the bed and I had opened up the closet door and showed him that there were no monsters and pulling the curtain back and doing all this extra stuff, he didn't take my actions to be trusted. He took the word of the Lord to be trusted because he repeated, God didn't give me a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. It is the word of the Lord that drives out fear. And in this moment, Abraham hears fear not. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4 and 18, perfect love casts out fear. The perfect one, the perfect love, Jesus came along and he disarmed fear. Family, fear is a wall, but faith is a bridge. Fear is a storm. Faith is an anchor. Fear is a stumbling block, but faith is a stepping stone. Fear is a cage, but faith opens doors to freedom. Fear builds walls, but faith builds bridges. Fear looks back, but faith looks ahead. When fear tries to be a weapon against me, I remember the words of the Lord. Here's what he tells Abram that I'm saying to you this morning. Fear not. So God speaks to our fears. Secondly, God speaks to our protection. He speaks to our protection. The scripture says, I am your shield. I am your 
shield. He says, not only can you set aside your fear, but you can count on me to be your shield. Notice he didn't say, I will give you a shield. He said, I am your shield. It was God leaning upon the fact that there is nothing greater than him to protect us, that we need him, and he ultimately is the shield that we need. Now, Abram had just had a real encounter with real enemies who he had to fight off, and God protected him. And we, too, have a real enemy, who with, and we have real trials, things that come from time to time that seem to want to destroy us and everything that God wants to do in us. But God reminds him that it was God that brought him the victory, and as long as he would rest in the Lord, he would continual, continually see victory. This would not be his last victory. In other words, God is not a passive observer of our lives. He actively shields, defends, and protects us from harm. God's shielding presence is not just a temporary refuge, it is a permanent dwelling place for his people. And and, in other words, it's not this one moment where God is going to protect us, but he continually continues to protect us. Even if you're in this room, and this is going to be hard for you to imagine, if you're in this room today and you don't know Christ, you've never professed faith in Jesus Christ, can I tell you there have been moments in your life that even though you've not acknowledged him, he's acknowledged you and he's protected you in your journey. He is a protector He says he is our shield. The shield was used to wield off flying arrows or rocks that were uh, slung with slingshots. It also was to defend against the attack of a wielding sword. In ancient days, the sling was big enough to protect a significant portion of the body. Maybe your legs might be uh, exposed, but the most vulnerable part, the head and the chest, were covered. Abraham had learned the value of a shield in battle, and this is why he probably understood him using the the, the idea of a shield. Ephesians 6, when Paul says, take up the shield of faith, he was referring to something that could almost cover us from all danger. That's the same protection we have in God, but to the extent that we are not exposed. He fully covers us. Here's the truth, family. We are our own worst security. The security we provide for ourselves comes with self-inflicted wounds. Any attempt to provide our own protection is usually temporal. Uh, When I was growing up, my mom was a single-parent mom raising two boys. She worked two and three jobs to make sure she could take care of us. I grew up in Memphis where um, cracking jokes was a thing. We actually call it checking. Uh, and if you, if you weren't able to keep up with what everybody had, people would crack jokes on you. And so my mom, she bought us two pairs of shoes a year. I got one pair of shoes in August. I got another pair of shoes at Christmas. So I had to take care of the shoes in August all the way to Christmas, and then the shoes in Christmas to the end of the school year. And back then, I might be dating myself, but this was before Air Force Ones, we we wore Reebok Classics. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Come on, I feel it. I feel it right here. Reebok Classics, that's what we wore. They were, they were no more than like, I think maybe 40, 50 bucks. 
And I would go to school because I had to hold on to these shoes for almost five months. I would literally go to school and I had a towel with me. And if somebody stepped on my shoes, I don't care what kind of conversation I was in. I didn't care who was behind me. I was leaning over to wipe my shoes off. If I scuffed them up against something, I was going to lean on and put a little spit on my thumb and I was getting the scuff off of my shoes. And then it got to a point where the tiles didn't work anymore. And because the tiles didn't work anymore, I needed to make sure I preserved these shoes. So I would come home every day and I had white shoe polish. And I would take that shoe polish and I would paint those shoes I mean, it looked like it had like seven, eight uneven coats all over the shoes. But I thought it was fresh. I was trying to keep them fresh. But eventually, no matter how much wiping I did, no matter how much shoe polish I put on those shoes, eventually something was going to happen to those shoes where they were just so busted I couldn't wear them anymore. They were temporal. I was doing everything I could do to protect my shoes because of the situation that I was in. And oftentimes in our lives, we're the same way. We're doing everything we can to make sure we can protect ourselves and set ourselves up the best we can. Ain't it? Just, let's just find the greatest job we can find. Let's make as much money as we can. Let's secure our 403B and our 401K. Let's make sure our savings are set up well. And ultimately, they do not provide us ultimate security. The, the real security that we need, the, the real protection that we need comes from God alone. He keeps us in our most vulnerable part. Psalm 91 verses 4 through 7 says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. There's no one else who's ever made this promise in all of history that they can protect us at this level. And God comes along and he tells Abram, I got your back. I'm going to take care of you. The shield was made to absorb whatever may come near you. God is strong enough to just to, to shield us, but he's also strong enough to absorb the pain that we face. As I was reading about the shield, I realized that this, the absor absorbing of pain, was what Jesus did on the cross, is that he took on all of what should have been reserved for me. He shielded me from the punishment of my very own sin. He shielded us from the punishment that we deserve, and he absorbed it. He took on the wrath of God that I deserve for me over 2,000 years ago. If that's not protection, I don't know what is. That is, that is the, the greatest shielding I've, I, I have and I will ever experience in my life. He has kept me. So not only has God spoken to our fears. Not only does he speak to our protection, but lastly, he speaks to our future. God speaks to our future. He says this to Abram, your reward shall be great. Your reward 
shall be. When I was young and I was reading the, the, the Bible, when I would see things like this, and I was thinking about everything that God was going to do for me in the He's going to pour his, all I got to do is stay faithful. He's going to pour his blessing out on me. And then as I started reading the text, I started recognizing that most of the time when it talked about blessing and it talked about God pouring out, pouring out his spirit or God was going to bless me, it wasn't about receiving a bunch of tangible stuff. You see, Abram had previously given up a big reward. He could have kept the spoils of war, but God told him not to. So he obeyed and he did not give anything. And it's probably this, this thing going off in Abram's head of like, man, I've given up everything. Why can't you give something to me? And God comes along and he says this. He says, your reward shall be great. Abraham's given up a lot. He's left the country that he was a part of to go to a place that's inhabited by people, and he doesn't have the land yet, but your reward, Abram, shall be great. Abraham is childless. He is told he's going to be the father of many nations. He's looking around saying, I don't have a son. Somebody else is going to be heir to all of the stuff that I have. But God says to Abraham, your reward shall be great. Or in the original language, it says, I am your great reward. That's what he says to Abram. It, it, it wasn't that God was going to be Santa Claus and come drop, drop, drop off a bunch of stuff that Abraham would enjoy. It was that God was telling Abraham that you will enjoy me forever. And this is foreign language to us because if we put out, we expect to get back. Sports teams play for championships. We work for pay. Imagine going to work for 60 hours a week, and on payday you check your bank account hoping that the direct deposit is hit, and you see nothing, and you call your job, and they go, yo, uh, we're giving out Bibles this week for pay. I, I know y'all love Jesus, but I'm going to have a problem. I work way too hard. I need my paycheck in the bank. And Abram... He's in this place where he's already rich. He has 318 servants serving him, a military that's trained. Abram, in his mind, technically does not need another war, another reward. It's not that God doesn't want to bless us with tangible physical things. I don't want you to hear that because you will miss that piece. God does want to bless us. It isn't that faithfulness to the call of God doesn't bring God's blessing, but rather the greatest reward is, reward is God alone. It's, it's God alone. It's God alone. That, that you don't need anything else, that in him, he is everything that you need. Hear me in focus. I have a wonderful wife. I got three amazing, uh, active boys and I love them to death. I, I, I got a great church. I love them. They're, they're serving right now and leading a service. I, I'm, I'm thrilled about the work that we're doing in Memphis. I'm thrilled about everything God is doing in my life. But I do not love them more than I love God. God has been everything that I need. He has been my great 
reward. Abram, I know everything looks bleak. You're in the wait. You believe in God. There's a kid that you want. You haven't seen it yet. Just like us, we don't have all the answers. And we're in this journey. We're in this wait. We're in this fight. But can I be honest? This journey, this, this wait, is less about the stuff that you're waiting on and more about the God who's going to give you those things. And it's God. It, it, it's God who wants you and desires that you would want him. Your future is far better than the promise you want. Your waiting is not ultimately about a tangible blessing, but in this way, your future reward is solely God alone. And he is far greater than any descendants, any land, or any children. Verse 5, it says that God took Abram outside and told him, look up at the heavens. Number the stars if you're able. Verse 6, Abram probably says what might be the most important verse in all of the Old Testament. He says, excuse me, God says this about Abraham. He says, so Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham puts his faith in God, puts his confidence in God alone, and it is counted to him as righteousness. When the wait seems tough, you go back and you read the preface and you read the promises of God that you've written down in your journals, the prophecies, everything that's been spoken. Don't overlook the fact that if you've trusted Jesus, you have the greatest reward you will ever have in life. That is the greatest reward we could ever have. Have a relationship with God. When I left Memphis in 2006 to go to school, it was all of a war zone. We were the murder capital in the United States. Left, I said, I'm never coming back to Memphis. Never. This is it. I'm done. I'm going to make a life for myself somewhere else. And the year after I get married, I start hearing the Lord nudge me, telling me that we were supposed to go back and plant a church in Memphis. I remember riding in the car and telling my wife, hey, we're supposed to go back to Memphis. She wasn't all in then, but I remember that the Lord was saying, like, you, you need to go back to Memphis. We get back to Memphis. We launch our church September 15th of 2019. Six months later, the pandemic hits. We have to go online. We don't know anything about live streaming. We don't know if any of our people are watching. We're passing a lot of young people. A lot of people were freshly converted or even trying to get to that place. During the pandemic, 13 months online, we're trying to figure out what, what, what are we going to do? Are, is this going to sustain or are, are, are we going to be able to make it through this? Are we going to be able to push through all of these, these things that are happening around us? Then we had to find a place to meet after coming out of the pandemic. And we get through that and we're going for a few months. And then I show up to hook up our trailer one Sunday and drive into church because we're loading in, loading out, and the trailer is completely gone. What do you do when you know God has given you a promise? I know God spoke to me about Memphis. I know God has called me to do all this stuff. And then, top that, we, we, we get, Pastor Britt pulls up to get me this morning, 30 seconds before he tells me he's outside, I get a phone call. And they're saying that 
we had a wreck with the trailer and the trailer is off its axle. What do you do? What do you do? You hang on the fact that God has given you a word. In spite of everything that's happening around us, God gave us a word to go. Because he gave us a word, we know he's going to take care of us. Whenever I'm troubled, I go back and I remember the word he spoke to us. That we will be a light in the midst of darkness. That we will see the kingdom of God come to a place where, where, where bad things have been spoken over our city. I remember the word the Lord gave me. Because of that, I'm going to stand and I'm going to trust the Lord in a way. Forget. Go back to what God spoke. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you've spoken. I thank you for how you've used these moments. Now, Lord, I pray that you would speak again to your people. For those who are here, who are waiting in faith, believing God for something, I'm praying this morning that you would speak so loud and so clear that they would be reminded of the promises of God. What you said, what you've spoken, what you Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at In Focus Church.